passage we're going to be looking at, of course, is 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. For those of you who, does it work? Yes. For those of you who are not equipped with a Bible, we have the verses on screen, but we encourage everyone to bring their Bibles, take notes as we go through the message. So please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Two verses in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And so resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brothers and sisters who are in the world. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. Today we're going to be looking at a theme that uh, garners a lot of interest typically when you speak about our arch enemy, our foe, otherwise known as Satan, the devil. And it garners a lot of interest because people are curious, and whether it be believers and unbelievers alike. We've looked at the topic of humility, and that one does not garner as much interest typically, except for those who love the Lord and trust Him. But when it comes to this particular subject, I've noticed that people have um, shown a great deal of interest. In fact, I've had people come to me and say, can we do a series on Satan? And the whole thing does not interest me, to tell you the truth. A series on the Lord, yes. He's, a, he's the object of our study. He is the one we are enthralled with. But we need to be aware of our arch enemy. Now, no, I want you to notice something very interesting about um, this topic, especially in the letter of Peter. Peter only addresses this topic as he comes to the end of his letter. Did you notice that? Up to now, he said nothing about Satan, nothing at all. In fact, if you read the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, again, it's at the end that he speaks about Satan. So it's the same pattern. Uh, the only place where the enemy is mentioned a little more frequent than usual would be the book of Revelation. But otherwise, throughout the letters, we have him mentioned seldomly. Look at the book of Job. He's mentioned in the beginning, and after that, that's it. Um, we see him appearing before God, and then he's no longer to be seen. Why does Peter only mention Satan as he comes to the end of his letter? In all likelihood, it was to impress upon believers the supremacy of Christ, the supremacy of the triune God, that God is sovereign and not Satan. Satan does not have the ultimate power. Now, when we look at the world around us, we see things unraveling, and there's a lot of bad news going around. But we may think that Satan has a lot of power. But the only power he has is delegated power. It's power that God has entrusted to him, and God removes that power at will. God alone has ultimate power. Not the Roman Empire for the saints of that day, not their hateful neighbors, not the antagonistic Jews. God, in the days of the early church, was on the throne. 
God has been on the throne and continues to be on the throne, he alone determines how far evil will progress and all the forces of hell will progress and our freedom move against the church. Had Peter felt that Satan was a foe on equal footing with God, the tone of his letter would have been far gloomier. Peter would have written with an alarming tone. He would have been anxious, but there is no alarm in Peter's letter. Peter writes with joy. He writes with triumph. Far from witnessing a fearful Peter, we read instead of an invigorating Peter. He comes across as strong, joyful. When you take into consideration what the early church had to go through and what it was enduring, it would have been natural for Peter to address the saints of that day in one of two ways. Both of these approaches would have conveyed the idea that God is not completely on the throne, full authority given to him, not in full control. Here's the two ways he could have approached Satan's and the suffering saints and them being buffeted, as we just sung, by Satan. Uh, he could have approached them with empathy. Peter could have spoken and written his letter with a lot of empathy. You know, he could have expressed sorrow and sadness for what these early Christians were going through. But there's no empathy in his letter. None whatsoever. Or he could have approached the saints with some sort of alarm or fear. Um, Peter could have used the language to convey the idea that Satan and God are somehow on equal footing. And many Christians today, though they do not say this openly, convey that message, that perspective. Peter's tone would have been one of fear. If you had you read his letter, you would have seen that there's caution, but there's no caution in Peter's letter. We do not see a fearful Peter, but an exuberant Peter. Look at verses 12 and 13 of chapter 4. We've already dealt with this, but I just want to, for sake of memory, reread them with you. 1 Peter chapter 4, 12 and 13. Beloved, these are the saints, the church, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though something strange were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that at the revelation of his glory, you may also rejoice and be overjoyed. There's no alarm. There's no empathy. He's not saying, oh, so I feel really, really horrible that you're going through such pain. He doesn't say that. There are believers who live in a constant state of fear. Um, they're misled, really. It's the only way you can really see it. They come across as though Satan is giving God a very hard time. And Satan is really having, many times, the upper hand. Hence, when they pray, they pray with an intensity that is unsettling. I've been in prayer meetings where... They're giving commands to the Spirit of God and they're cursing Satan and, and they're screaming at the top of their lungs. Why is that? Because it seems that God is, needs their help that way. You know? Um, all of Satan's activity on earth can be only carried out only with God's permission. 
God is fully sovereign. And we must not be disturbed by the things that are going on around us. It is extremely important that we understand that God is sovereign, that God is in control. Obviously, this truth is a complex one because it causes some Christians to think, wait a minute, God is in control, God is on the throne. What about all the evil that's in the world, the pain, the suffering? And that's a subject of theodicy, which causes a lot of debate. But if we don't speak from the vantage point of God's sovereignty, then we are in real trouble, in real trouble. Scriptures are clear on this point. God and not Satan is in control. God and not Satan has the upper hand. Never, never in Scripture do we see a frazzled God on the throne. This truth alone can bring your hearts to rest and will take away all the fear and dispel all the doubt. It is from this vantage point that Peter addresses the subject of Satan. And from no other vantage point. No other vantage point. And only briefly, as he comes to the end of his letter, up to this point, he has not said a word about Satan. He has spoken at length about Christ, the Spirit, the Father. His letter is centered on the triune God and our relationship with the triune God. There are pastors today whose entire ministry focus is on Satan. I've heard them speak. They see spirits everywhere. The spirit of doubt, the spirit of gloom, the spirit of fear, and Satan is doing this, and, and they draw a crowd. But it's all a lot of drama because they're exaggerating something that Scripture absolutely, absolutely condemns. We are to speak of Christ. We're not called as believers in this world to warn people about Satan. We're called to point them to the gospel, to Christ, to his victory on the, on the cross, his victory over Satan, his victory over the minions of Satan. We are to preach that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee is going to bow down. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. When Paul writing to the believers in Rome, he also does encourage, rather, the believers with these words, and it's good for us as well today. Romans 16, verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Why be afraid? Why be afraid? Paul adds nothing more because with his letter, the letter to the Romans, he points out the greatness of God, the greatness of his love, the greatness of his plan. Satan is a player in this whole scheme that God has designed. He's a player and nothing more. He's not on equal footing with God. And at the end, he will be crushed under our feet. John reminds us in his letter, we know that no one who has been born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him. In other words, Christ was born of God, therefore keeps that believer and the evil one does not touch him. And the word touch means there has ultimate victory over a believer. You are, you and I are touched by the enemy, and I will show you in a little while how, but the ultimate victory of our, uh, of the church, of every believer, is guaranteed 
because those whom God has foreknown are glorified. Right? That's the promise. Now, knowing this, we must not ignore the enemy altogether. There are believers that totally ignore Satan. And those are the two extremes. One extreme is we become obsessed with him, and the other one is to ignore him as though he's not around. And that we do to our own harm. That's why Peter does speak about the importance of being aware. That's the key. The key word is awareness of the strategy that Satan has against God's people. That's why Paul, writing in his second letter to the Corinthians, says we are not ignorant, right? We're not ignorant of Satan's devices. And so we look at this verse, verse 8 of, of uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, and we see that Peter highlights one aspect, which is perhaps his predominant one, against the church, against Christians. This is his MO. This is how Satan works. So let's look at verse 8. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. I remember the first time reading that passage, I saw it in a totally different light than I see it today. And uh, there was a time when I uh, was very much concerned about Satan's activity and Satan's work. This adversary that brought about or brings about great disturbance in the church. What we're going to look at today is his attack, his activity, and his aim. His attack, for the first thing we notice that Peter calls him your adversary. That's the first thing. Satan is not the world's adversary. Um, His attack is not aimed at those who do not belong to God. Peter's talking about a specific attack. His primary target is the church. Why doesn't he attack the unredeemed? Paul gives us the answer in Ephesians 2, in verse 2, where we read, And you were dead in your offenses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. The reason why is because you are alive. Christians are alive. They are the sons of obedience, the children of God. And therefore, Satan has now become your adversary. Before coming to Christ, he is not your adversary. You are dead in your sins. You are blind. You are lost. You are completely disconnected from God. In fact, you are the enemy of God. But the moment you come to Christ, you are now alive and you have a new enemy. Your previous enemy was God. Your new enemy is Satan. You had no such enemy prior to coming to Christ. As God's people, we are now sons of obedience. And he is the prince of disobedience as Satan. For this reason, he is our adversary. And he never stops attacking God's people. And we realize it from reading Revelation chapter 12, how incessant his attack is. In Revelation 12 verse 10, we read, Now salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, that's another name for Satan, by the way, has been thrown down, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. 
He never accused you before God previous to your conversion. There was nothing to accuse. You're dead. You're dead in your sins. You were in the kingdom of darkness. But now that you are alive, he accuses you day and night, incessantly. How powerful is this passage? Day and night, the God, that God would even allow such a formidable enemy to attack his people day and night is remarkable. God would, could have done away with such an evil onslaught. The moment you became a believer, he could have sheltered you. He could have protected you. He could have said, you know what? No, nothing will happen to you. We do that as parents. We try to shelter our kids from anything that could hurt them. But God does no such thing. He protects us. He keeps us. But he doesn't shelter us. Never. He could have prevented the evil one from coming into our lives and from attacking us, from becoming our adversary. But he does no such thing. Why? Because God is all wise. God is all powerful. God is the author and the finisher of our salvation. And part of that process to make us holy includes the work of Satan. If Satan is removed, that process is short-circuited. That's how wise God is. That's how powerful he is. God can use him. Satan is God's Satan. He is on a leash, and he works according to his commands, and nothing more. Now, we look at the world and say, oh my goodness, what is God doing? Fear not, saint. God is on the throne. He's in control. I've been there many times wondering, what is God doing? Or you fall into the category of, okay, I have to fight Satan. I've got to fight him at every turn. I'm going to fight him before going to bed. And I'm going to fight him when I wake up. And I'm going to fight him as I drive to work. And I'm going to fight him when I'm with my family. Living that way becomes very, very cumbersome and discouraging. And you may be wondering why God allows you to trip and fall. And allows you to become weak. And at times it may even seem to you that God takes pleasure in seeing us fall in sin. Why does he allow Satan to attack me this way, you may say. But how can God, who hates sin, take pleasure in seeing his children sin? Absolutely not. There is an obvious reason as to why God allows Satan to use his arsenal against us. God allows this incessant attack, as I said on, as I said earlier rather, so that his children may grow. It's part of our maturity process. There is no growth for sheltered believers. I've brought this example many times before. Look at a plant in a greenhouse and look at a plant outside that's in the open, planted in a garden, in a field, wherever. There are humongous differences between those two plants. The sheltered plant, the greenhouse plant is weak and it, it doesn't handle storms. The plant that is outside weathers the storms and it's grown strong through the winds that blows against it, the storms that come against us, the snow that falls on it, the storms that come its way and that tree grows stronger and stronger. God does not want us to be weak. Absolutely not. And so Satan fulfills God's purposes. He does not fulfill his purposes. Satan cannot fulfill his purpose. He can't. Satan fulfills God's purpose. All of Satan's scheming, all of his attacks against the church will prove useless. For the Lord himself, as we read earlier, will crush Satan under our feet. 
Now let's look at his activity. His activity, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Prowls around like a roaring lion. Notice that Peter likens Satan's activity to a prowling lion. This is a simile. Whenever you read the word as or like, it's a simile. Jesus is the lion. He's not like. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Satan is like a roaring lion. And it speaks of his voracious appetite. His desires are set against God's people. The chief characteristic about Satan is to be acknowledged. This thing that he's voracious, that he desires our fall, that he targets believers. And and we need to be aware of this, specifically elders, because previously Peter addresses elders. And elders are to be on guard against the wolves, against the schemes of the prowling lion. Elders cannot be sleeping, cannot be slumbering. But every saint needs to be alert and aware of Satan's devices against him. It makes sense that this passage is addressed to all members, but it's also addressed to the elders so that people of God do not fall prey to the schemes of the enemy. But in which way does the enemy prowl? He is looking for unsuspecting and distracted believers to pounce upon. I'm not sure if you've ever seen any videos on lions or tigers. They, um, if you turn up your back, in fact, if you ever go to a zoo, and obviously not in real contact with a lion, and you turn your back to a lion, the lion will come. There's something about turning our backs to him that uh, intrigues him and, and motivates him to come against you. That's why in Scripture we never see God's people turning their backs to this enemy. We face him. And why does he roar? He only roars when he is successful with his prey. A lion will never roar before attacking the prey. And so here's Satan who is... Uh, voracious, he is hungry, he wants to seize us and devour us. His roar only comes after his victory. And that's really his short-term goal, a roar, nothing more. God has a long-term goal to be, us, for us to be glorified. His short-term goal, a roar. <laughs> Yippee-doo, go ahead and roar. So how can we understand the simile of a prowling lion? What is Satan's tool par excellence as he prowls? The answer can be found in the word Peter uses to describe our, our, our arch enemy. It's in his name. Our foe has several enemy names, rather. Devil, serpent, dragon, angel of light. But in this passage, Peter makes use of the word devil. And uh, this word simply means slanderer. Someone who says a lie about someone else. Jesus throws light on this activity of Satan in John 8 when he says, in John 8, 44, you are of your father the devil and you want to do the desires of your father. And he's speaking this to those who hate him, the religious leaders of that day. He, speaking of Satan, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Please take note of that. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. 
Whenever he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature. That's all he does. Satan lies because he is a liar and the father of lies. This slander-in-chief, the devil, lies and lies and lies. And that's how he gets Christians. Now, many Christians are afraid of, I've had people come to me and say, listen, I had this, this uh, feeling in, that there was a presence in my room. Satan doesn't fool around with stuff like that. He's not there to scare you. He doesn't care. It's not Halloween. He lies. That's his thing. Doesn't. Are there people that are possessed? Yeah, they're possessed. There are people that are possessed. Why? They've opened their lives to his lies. And the more you open your life to his lies, the more he has access to your life. A Christian, though, belongs to God that is filled with spirit and continues to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord, does not need to live in that fear. He is in the truth. And the truth has set him free. Truth of the gospel. There's absolutely no truth in Satan. None whatsoever, as Jesus says. There's only one person who does not fall for Satan's lies. And thank God he doesn't. God. <laughs> because remember, he accuses the brethren night and day before God. And that doesn't work. But to each of us, Satan lies. And his lies are always slanderous, not only lies. If I tell you, for example, I went to someone's house yesterday when really I was uh, golfing, that's a lie. That's not slander. If I tell you, for example, after a meal, it was delicious, and it really wasn't, right, according to my taste, that's a lie, but it's not slanderous. But if I speak about you in negative way, right, and I speak about you and I say something that is untrue, that's a slander. And you can see how many slanderous remarks there are on social media. Satan is the chief slanderer. He is slanderer-in-chief. And to each of us, he lies. And his lies are always about God. He lies about his character. He lies about his holiness. He lies about God's word. The devil lies. That's his activity. That's what he is concerned about. This is why he prowls, seeking another unsuspecting believer that will give in to his lies. And his lies come via the media, via friends, via even Christians who have fallen for a lie. There are many lies that are spreading. Someone has rightfully said, while truth, its tie and its laces, lies have, made, have circled the earth. So Satan shoots out his lies and he uses minions, his demons, to feed deception. It's lying time for him constantly. So he lies about God. He lies about God's ability to take care of you, God's ability to bring you to heaven, your salvation by faith, by grace and through faith rather, your, uh, fact, the fact that you belong to him. He makes you doubt God's love and God's promises and the veracity of God's word. Over and over, he lies. I see so many Christians falling for his lies. And you don't have to be a weak Christian, strong Christians. Peter fell for Satan's lies. And some fall into discouragement because they believe the lie. 
They fall into sinful behavior because they believe a lie. They fall into fear because they believe Satan's lies. The first lie ever uttered on planet Earth was in the Garden of Eden and in that pristine environment where there was no sin. The slander-in-chief lied to Eve. and These were his words. In Genesis 3, verses 4 and 5, you certainly will not die. For God knows that on the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. That's his best lie, by the way. You will become like God. And people still believe that. We're going to go on Mars and we're going to have a new world up on Mars. A whole bunch of things people believe. No, it's not true that God created the world in six days. As if God could not be clear about that. Really. He is a slander in chief. He twists God's word. He lies about who we are, that we are less than what God really made us to be, because that's what he says. You're going to be like God. You're here. God is there, but he knows that if you eat that, you're going to be here. Today, Satan continues the same strategy with his weapons of mass deception among the church, among the church. As slander-in-chief, he lies about Christ. He lies about the cross. He lies about Christians, about the church. How many Christians have heard said these words when they've stopped attending? I don't want to go anymore. The church is full of hypocrites. You know, that's, uh, people fall for that. And who would tell them that? Who would say that to me? Who would make me believe that? You think the Lord would come and say through his word, the church is full of hypocrites. Please don't attend. Please don't be part of the church. Does, is that anywhere in scripture? No. It's a lie. It's a lie from the enemy. In order not to fall for the lies of this liar, the father of lies, we must saturate our minds with the truth of Scripture. Saturate. Not a verse here and there. Saturate. Read it. Meditate it. And be open to correction. That means church. That means being together. That means talking one to another. You can't be alone. On our own, we are no match for such a cunning foe. God's word richly dwelling in our hearts and shared with each other is our only defense. We've looked at his attack. We've looked at his activity. Now let's look at his aim. What is his objective? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. At first, we may read these words, and I used to read it this way, these, especially this expression, seeking someone to devour, and, and assume that Peter is warning believers about Satan's desire to kill Christians because Christians suffered and eventually Nero um, mounted a, a, a vast persecution against Christians. But if Peter had this in mind, he would be contradicting himself. Because Peter earlier on was telling them, rejoice if you suffer. And he would be contradicting the Lord's words. In Matthew 10, 28, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. So imagine Peter saying, oh yes, be careful. 
Satan wants to kill you. Satan wants to destroy you. He's going to come in your room and he's going to scare you and you're going to be paralyzed there. The word nightmare, by the way, comes from the Greek word incubus, which means nightmare. That's what the word nightmare means. And, you know, people believe that Satan would visit souls at night to scare them. That's not Satan's activity. There must be some spirit that has nothing else to do. That's not his main activity. It's deception. Deception. Lies. Jesus says it clearly. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear God. That's the only person we are to fear. So how could Peter be saying, be careful, Satan wants to kill you. Hide in your houses. Go somewhere. Go in hiding. Do whatever. Peter is not making this statement at all. It makes no sense. So what is Peter referring to when he says, Satan is seeking someone to devour? In which way does Satan devour? What is he after? Well, obviously he's after us. He's our adversary. But what is he devouring? He's not going to kill us. He's not going to bring us to some persecution and, and cause us to... No, and through persecutions, the church has been stronger, if anything. That doesn't work very well. It's an important question. Because if we realize what he's after, we will be more alert in making sure that we do not fall for his schemes. Well, we've already seen that Satan roams about in order to deceive us with his lies, especially slanderous remarks about our God, about his word, about his love, about his righteousness, his faithfulness. Popular lie, there is no hell. It's another one. So many, I mean, you can go through all of them. God is going to accept everybody in heaven. He systematically throws out these lies and he uses scholars. Recently, there's been a big debate over the book of Genesis, whether it was written by Moses or not, and recent scholars, I've come to conclusion that Moses did not write the Torah. They always come up with a new one. And when we give in to his deception, Satan is successfully devouring that which is precious. And what can throw light on these words is an experience that took place in Peter's life during the final days of Jesus' earthly life. We read that Peter one day was bragging. Arrogantly, he claimed that no one is like him. I will not leave you. Others will, but I will not leave you. He would never deny the Lord. And listen to the words of Jesus to Peter. In fact, to the 12. Simon, Simon, and notice he doesn't call him Peter. Why? Because at that moment, Peter was a Simon. He was acting in his self. Simon, Simon, behold... Satan has demanded to sift you men like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith will not fall. Or fail, rather. Notice that Satan has asked to sift all 12, but was granted by God permission to particularly attack Satan. God gave him permission. He couldn't do it. Satan could not go and attack Peter unless... Permission was granted. Again, this shows the wisdom of God. Satan went full arsenal against Peter. And in the process, Peter 
was sifted as a farmer sifts wheat. What would happen as a result of Peter thinking that he in himself had the strength to walk after Christ, be faithful to Christ, and never abandon Christ? That in itself is pride. And pride, of course, is Satan's key to our lives. What would happen is that his faith would be shattered, his trust in Christ would be devoured, he came short in his peace, his joy, he broke down crying and weeping, he was miserable, and at the end, he doubted his call. All that because he gave in to Satan's lies. After Satan finishes with us, with his lies, that's when he roars. He roars because he has a short-term victory. He got you with his deception. In your soul, that moment is guilt-ridden. When you sin, it's because you listen to his lies. When you are afraid, it's because you listen to his lies. When you doubt his word, it's because you're listening to his lies. And those lies may come in many ways, and sometimes they take a lot of room in our hearts, in our minds rather, and those are fortresses that need to be dismantled, that need to be brought down. The enemy devours the precious fruit of faith, joy, peace, love for the word, love for prayer, love for the fellowship. He, de- he devours this. So I lose interest in the fellowship. I lose interest in the word. I lose interest in the prayer. I lose interest in sharing Christ. I become quiet. I become shameful or embarrassed rather. I don't want to share Christ. I don't know if it's the right time. And all these thoughts that roam in our minds, all because we have listened to his lies. Now, of course, if I were to end here, I would be actually... I've just exegeted the verse and I've shared with you what God has placed on my heart and I've exposited this passage where we've seen Satan's attack, incessant attack against believers, Satan's activity. He prowls around, sowing his carefully crafted deception and Satan's aim, his objective, to devour our trust in God, our joy, our holiness, our peace, our love for the word, our love for the fellowship to make us barren and miserable and weak as Christians. That's his aim. But it's a short-term victory. You see, it's very easy for believers to stand against all this. Here's the key answer. Peter speaks about Satan immediately after what? Speaking about humility. There's the answer. You cannot speak about Satan if you don't look at humility as a believer. Because if you do, you're just interested in drama. So what's the key to not allowing Satan to do his work of deception in our lives? Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, verse 6, which we dealt with last week. That's the key. Because when we humble ourselves, that's when God's word is attractive. If God's word isn't attractive, it's because there's just a lot of pride that we need to rid ourselves of. And that pride is a soil for his deception. That's what it is. It's soil for deception. You know, and so when we live like that, confident like Peter was, oh yes, I'm a Christian, yes, I know what I'm doing, I understand God's word, that's happened to me over and over. We fall. Because we listen to his deception. We don't, and they're so subtle. They're so 
unique is deception. That's how Peter fell. That's how David fell. That's how every man of God has fallen, every child of God. That's how we fall for the lies, the deception of the enemy. There can be no victory against such a formidable foe unless we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this precious, precious word that you have given to us. I thank you because truth indeed sets your people free. It begins with the truth of the gospel, that we are sinners, that we deserve nothing but judgment, but that in Christ you have been merciful and you make us children of God to sit at your table, to be your people. And in your wisdom, Lord, you allow this arch enemy, this powerful foe, to do his best against us. We know that he is given limits by you. We know that you're in control. We have nothing to fear. But sometimes we do get overwhelmed, Lord. We get discouraged. We get discouraged because we do not see ourselves being able to stand against this enemy, to stand against his deception, to stand against his lies, and we fall. When we fall, we grieve you. Lord, cause your children not to grieve you. Lord, you want us to walk in holiness. You want us to walk in obedience. You desire that we could stand against this enemy, against his lies and his deception, against this prowling lion who seeks to devour that which is most precious, our walk with you, our joy in Christ, our peace that surpasses all understanding, our love for the brethren. He devours that which is most precious when we give in to his lies. Lord, help us, grant us grace to spot the lies that have come into our lives, into our minds, and have entrenched themselves there. And now we've embraced them, we've accepted them, and we repeat them to ourselves and to others. Deliver us from the lies of the enemy. Deliver us from his deception. And may your word dwell richly in the hearts of your people, I pray so that we can withstand him and resist him and not turn our backs to him in fear, but watch him flee from us as we resist him. We pray this for our church. We prayed for our families. We prayed for our children. We prayed for each one who is here that belongs to you and those who do not, that you would draw them to yourself. Give them life so they too would have a new enemy and not you as their enemy. They would have, oh Lord, the strength to withstand him and resist him and fight and at the end be equally rewarded when they come into your presence. Be glorified in your church, we pray, in the wonderful and glorious name of Christ. Amen.